0: Hello, hello, hello. What is up? Welcome, welcome. We're breaking into the future. You guys know what it is. We're we're getting used to this. We're breaking into all things. The future is now. I got my guy here, Corey Harris. I love how we met. We met in the virtual world, Twitter spaces. Um, You said some amazing things um, and gave some great insights to some crypto regulation. Um, but how we always start this show off is the people, the people want to know, who is Corey Harris? Who are you, bro? Tell them. All right. Well, uh, thanks for the introduction. Um,
1: I say to other people, I'm I'm a lawyer. Um, I'm also an investor, I'm an entrepreneur, and uh, I'm also an expat. So a bunch of different things at the same time. Nice, nice, nice. Um, where are you from? I'm from Virginia, uh Richmond. That's where I've lived uh up until I was about 18 years old. Since then I've kind of moved all around the
0: world. So yeah. nice. Did you always want to move all around the world? Uh to be honest, yes. Um I have to
1: give, you know, my family and parents credit for that. Basically, kind of encouraging curiosity. So in my case, um it really started as a kid where I was around, you know how everybody's in grade school, right? So my city back then so we're talking in the you know early 90s late 80s richmond was you know a majority african american type of city mm. but i was fortunate to have friends that just so happened to live on my street from different countries mm. and that kind of exposed me as a young child to like oh there's different countries different types of food and those kinds of things and just over time i naturally kind of got it i guess the the seed was planted in my mind like oh okay if something ever comes up in the future and i have an opportunity kind of see how things are in different parts of the world like I want to try to pursue that so that's really the the impetus for me ending up you know ending up
0: in Asia Mm -hmm. yeah and so that was Richmond was was your background and what happened when you left the parents house
1: so school-wise um I mean I've pretty much been a nerd like super nerd so I was in school my entire career uh I just finished some other school recently which we could get (laughs) into but I um went to school at Hampton university. So HBCU,
2: uh,
1: the pirates. Um, and then after that, so while there I did a lot of different things where I studied, I was doing a lot. I've always, that's kind of my MO. I've always doing a million different things, but at the time I was, uh, and I did study political science. Mm -hmm. So, but I also minored in economics and then I also minored in Spanish and I didn't even want to be a lawyer, super nerd. I didn't, I didn't want to be a lawyer. Actually, I wanted to be a developmental economist, which are, the places they're the people who build basically build nation states yeah. that's what they do yeah. and i wanted to do that for various reasons but then i realized like okay i didn't necessarily want to be kind of a academic um purely like ivory towers type of thing yeah so i decided to go like the law and business route mm-hmm. so after hampton that's what took me to uh boston um my first time actually living north of the mason dixon line which is a whole different sort of experience yeah. Uh, so I moved from moved from Virginia to the Northeast, and spent ten years between school and work. I spent ten years living in Boston, um, and went to Boston College and did my first law degree, my JD, and my MBA at Boston College as well. And then I just worked in Boston, you know, as a working professional, uh, practicing lawyer, um, and then I also did in-house counsel work. Um, so that was that was kind of that original sort of what took you out of the house. And I basically never really went back. I would go home for, you know, summer internship type of things. But really since then, which was the year 2000 to date myself, I haven't actually full time really been at home. Um, The other thing that took me was after I finished school there, I ended up um, getting an opportunity to go to Berkeley Law. So I went there as well, got another degree. So it's called an LLM, which is a master's in law.
2: Mm. Um,
1: and basically continue my professional experience, which was when I graduated law school, I was basically the money guy. I always wanted to work with and around capital, capital allocators, people forming funds, all that sort of stuff. And I originally wanted to do investment banking. Um, but as fate would have it, my, so the JD MBA is a four-year program. So on my, during my fourth year was actually when. That final semester for me was the semester when Bear Stearns went under.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: interestingly enough, I was in a recruiting meeting with bankers from Goldman Sachs on the day that Bear Stearns (laughs) went under. And I remember it specifically because it wasn't just me. It wasn't just me in the meeting. It was a a group of people and uh, they had to rush out of the meeting. Everybody's blackberries were going off and all that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff back then. And so fast forward, once I um, graduated, I ended up working at a large law firm based in Boston, doing a lot of work in the area of fund formation, which yeah. is private investment funds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people who were forming funds. This, that's what, that was my second introduction into the venture space. My first introduction was actually, I kind of already knew I wanted to go into that space uh, once I got into law school. Yeah, And so I spent time in India and I spent time in Hong Kong and actually in Thailand for the first time working with VCs when I was in business school who were doing investments directly in Southeast Asia. Yeah. So that was one of my first exposures. This is before I even finished school. Yeah. And so when I came out, I already kind of knew like, I really like this old VC thing. I like the tech aspect of it. I like the, the personality types it tends to attract, mm-hmm. which it can be, it tends to be people who are very um, forward thinking who are looking and trying to innovate, push the envelope, do things different, want a better way. You know, it's not really, quote unquote, old money, as people would say. And it actually matches up quite interestingly enough with the crypto ecosystem as well, which we're currently kind of, you know, all living in and a part of. Mm -hmm. So that was my original sort of path to the professional life that I ended up building. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. You 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 said before we got on you did a million things, <laughs> I can see it formulated. Yeah. And uh, what would you? I guess like as a loaded question, like being curious, right? Being kind of a forward thinker yourself, right? I'm you're out the house, like I'm off the porch, like I'm just gonna be a nerd and just hop into all these things and want to make money. But it seemed like you were just being curious to oh lawyer finance, form, form formation. Oh, what's venture? What are all these uh, different um, funds and ways of allocating money? And you have a lot of educational experience and then you got into Southeast Asia. So is that when you became an ex-fat, you're like, I'm going to go over there. What, what led you abroad with all the experience you are getting time. I
1: mean, it's really, I almost consider it as, you know, like certain people are born for certain things where they're just built a certain way. I really think it's just my personality in that I've always thought about things in a very global sense. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned when I was an undergrad, I was a minor in Spanish. And so that was actually my first time abroad. I spent time in Costa Rica uh, studying Spanish, just getting you know the basics that you do kind of in college. Mm-hmm. Also spent time in Spain and different cities around that country as well. And that was really what gave me the thought of like, okay, when you start spending months and months in places, you know, you have apartments, you know you go to the coffee shop, you buy your groceries, you start really seeing like, okay, life for people is different around the world, and like this is something that it, I could do. This is something that, you know, what you might see on the news about living in certain places doesn't always match up with that reality. Mm. And so that's really what kicked off my curiosity. Um, on the Asia side, it, it really goes back to just to be totally honest, I was lucky that when I was a high school student, my high school was the only school in the state that taught uh, Japanese to high school students. Uh-huh. And that was because we had a uh, international exchange program. You know how different cities in the US have like sister cities yeah. in foreign countries. Yeah. And it just so happened that there was, the school district where I lived had a sister city program and the teachers brought in um, a Japanese professors from Nagoya, Japan. So my entire this is me at 14 years old, my entire class of us that took Japanese at 14, Mm -hmm. um, I'd say about 75 percent are somehow in Asia or they live in Japan full time to this day. Yeah. And so it wasn't just my year. So it was it was not just my year. It was a program through the school. So it it lasted. It might even still be going on, but it was for a number of years. So even classes behind me, folks that were younger. There's been a cohort of people from my school, my little town <laughs> that are all living in Japan or live oh. in Asia because we kind of got exposed to cultures that, you know, at a very young age. Okay. So it's for crazy. me, it's always been about not really a major strategic plan, especially as an adolescent, but it's okay. really you just follow follow your curiosity. Mm-hmm. And then you try to just nurture that curiosity,
0: mm-hmm. whether it's professional or just personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. that, that's an awesome opportunity to like at 14, right? many people don't, they can just see their-, their Oh, makeup. it's a blessing, man. Yeah. Total like, blessing. Like, I mean, I, I grew up from a not,
1: not a crazy background, but I definitely was aware and no more than one degree separation from some of those crazy backgrounds you hear about. Yeah. And so for me, I don't really know what motivated me to take uh, to take class, but it was, you know, you're in high school, you have to pick between different languages. And I was like, well, let me, I'm really about being different. So I was like, you know what, this is the most different thing that I've seen yeah. in the school curriculum yeah, in my yeah. life. Japanese, like I have no idea. <laughs>
0: Let me take that just to see what it's about. And that's really how it started for me. Just like, yeah. just be different. That's awesome. And so how fluent are you fluent in Japanese?
1: I'm not fluent. on professional Freshman. level. I would say yeah. proficient, professional. It ebbs and flows mainly because day to day I do business in English. Mm. Um, Uh and Japanese is similar to other languages where if you don't use it constantly, you will your skills will diminish. But in my case, I've been around it for so long that you know, we can't travel right now, but if I get back around it sort of 24 seven, within a week, I will have picked up to a baseline level of Japanese. So, like even right now, if I were to get off a plane, I'm gonna know how to, you know, navigate the subway. Get yeah. to my hotel, order my food, yeah, yeah like anything you need for day to day life. But as a practicing lawyer and fluent legal Japanese, no, I mean, that's even, even, uh, even local people born there have to go to
0: school to get that additional uh, set of skills. So, like, so yeah, it's just a, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Dang. So you're, you're in Thailand now. Um, that's how right. Many, how many cities have you, you've been in? Um, abroad and has that mostly been Southeast Asia actually no the
1: funny thing is um, I spent basically the first half of my life only in Latin America so um, Nicaragua uh, Brazil Costa Rica when I was at in the different firms I've worked in over the years I was on different uh, business teams so I do speak Spanish still fluently like professional level so I was on a lot of Spanish related deal teams that sort of thing Nice. Um, and then, so basically what happened was I, I, um, was into Japanese in high school when I went to Hampton in college, they didn't offer it. So I took Spanish, but I didn't forget the Japanese. It's just like, okay, well just adapt to the circumstance. Mm-hmm. So then that basically led me on a 15 year odyssey of just doing a lot of things in Latin America, as far as working, yeah. you know, making connections, etc. Yeah. And then once I uh, finished law school and got back in the professional world, Um, These other opportunities came and I was like, oh, well, I remember I was doing VC work in Southeast Asia. So I'm like, you know, it's a good thing. I still remember this Japanese here. Let's Mm -hmm. see what's going on. And so I just basically a lot of times where people go to school and they just take a class to pass the test. Yeah. My my philosophy, even as a kid, was always like, no, I want to remember everything I'm taking because who knows how it's going to be useful. And so I've just basically added on to different skill sets
0: over my entire life. What gave so you the foresight to think about that though? Why like, was it just you? Like I'm just I I think ten years down the road, or as an adolescent uh, thinking that way, or was like did you have people in your life? were like you never know. Little Corey, that's a good. Gonna well, no, you? I think um you just
1: that's a good good question. I don't think okay, there was no grand plan. you, you can't be 12 years old, 13 to have some grand plan for your life like that. I don't think. <laughs> one um, in a million in my yeah. Case, yeah yeah in my case i've always tried to just stay true to my own curiosity Yeah, that's it all back to that and i always i always put more value on real knowledge and understanding versus just having an a in the class yeah so One of the things I tell sometimes I might mentor young people and, you know, whether they're going to med school or trying to go to law school, they're usually really like type A, hyper focused on getting straight A's and all that sort of stuff. And what I tell people is that the one thing I love about languages and culture is that an A on the test means nothing if you can't navigate a real
0: life situation with the people, man. If you're not out there, exactly. the news, but it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's, yeah. the,
1: it's the application. So the theory and the practice. Yeah. You have to actually be able to apply your knowledge in real time on your feet. Now that has served me, for folks who are paying attention, and that serves you across all of life. But my first real understanding of that probably came from the foreign language side, which is that you need to take what's in a textbook and you need to be able to quickly apply it to a fact pattern in your actual life, yeah, and you need to have the ability to recall that information under stress or under some sort of pressure, yeah. right? Because you're trying to figure something out. Usually, when you need a word or you need to be able to say something, but yeah. that same skill set applies in the legal space. It applies across many different areas and avenues. But I say for me, it was always like I don't really care as much on my grade on some Spanish test or Japanese test. I need to make sure that when I'm in that place, if I ever meet those people, mm-hmm. that I can actually communicate with them and that they can understand what I'm saying. Yeah, And that was always more important for me, especially on the language side. Mm-hmm. Now you need the grades too, of course, but on, on the language side, it's like, okay, if I can't talk to you and I don't remember that word, it doesn't matter if I got an A on that test or whatever I was doing back, you know, when I was younger.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the foundation of, of is like, stay curious, let's remember it let's apply it let's understand it and led you to to law to different business being the money man right getting into venture capital which is new businesses for people that uh for the viewers um that can scale and be large and you did that in southeast asia you did that in latin america right your curiosity led you around the world so in these new venture capital um Uh, funds that give investment to these new companies, where does crypto come along? And when did crypto come along?
1: Well, uh, see, the first VC fund I was ever involved with was on the corporate side. So as a law student, I was working in a large insurance company. And what gave me the flavor, the first introduction to VC is that if you're an insurance company, you know, they've got to match their assets and their liabilities because they've got to make these payouts over long periods of time. Yeah, And so what insurance companies do is they are looking at how do we generate returns? And they do that through equity, fixed income, cash, and then alternative investments. Mm. And alternative investments takes you into a couple of different buckets, which takes you into, you know, hedge fund and venture capital and private equity, private equity just being a later stage life cycle effectively of venture capital because it's all still private capital. Yeah. And so from there, what took me into the sort of VC space is really in the U.S. So I was started there working with a lot, a lot of the large, older established VCs who've been around since the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. and doing that as a young lawyer and as a junior lawyer and kind of working my way up the ranks. And if I were to look at the, the key thing about VC, I guess from then to now is actually it's still the same. VC, if you boil it down, it's really all about basically what's hot and what the trend is. So what do I mean by that? So I can take a step back and, and sort of synthesize it as a lawyer. So if you were to, when I was practicing uh, in the 2008, 2009, 2010, the general consensus was, okay, VC's dead, you we're know, in the great financial crisis. Um, what was going on was pensions were losing money because they lost a lot of money in the downturn of the stock market. And in order to raise cash, what they ended up having to do was sell their illiquid stakes at, at pennies on the dollar. To actually raise cash to fund their current liabilities. Yeah, and so people thought from the VC side, oh, it's dead because basically sentiment was effectively as bearish as it could ever be. <laughs> yeah, and but if you look at those vintages, I tell people this all the time. I remember talking to older partners saying, "Oh, VC's not coming back" or this or that. If you look at the vintage of of uh, venture capital funds that were raised in 2009, 10 and eleven. Oof. A lot of the companies that you're talking about now that are all public companies and they're high flying, their first investments were all during those years. The
0: bearish times, the blood on the street. Exactly. Streets, the Ubers. That was, was because blood, blood
1: blood was on the street, valuations added. were low. Yeah. Sentiment was low. Mm-hmm. That because valuations and sentiment were low, it meant that you could get in a larger portion on the cap table at a lower capital outlay. And so it also meant that there were fewer folks running around chasing those new startups because they were still licking their wounds from the great financial crisis. Yeah. So that was kind of how it progressed. And then over the years, if you look at where VC has gone from then to now, well, and interesting to tie it to crypto, um, because I've been steeped in this space as well. I started in crypto as an attorney in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, I was generally aware of crypto 2009-10, but back then I was dealing with student loans, just life. Yeah. Um, but in 20, wh- what I would say is that the tide of to crypto, a lot of people don't realize is that you have the Bitcoin white paper. Everyone knows that was released in 2008 and then Bitcoin launched was 2009. And then you have shortly after, you know, you have the Ethereum project, um, their white paper and then their token those early projects actually especially on the ethereum side they approached venture capital venture capital turned them down the reason that we had the ico boom in 2017 bitcoin, was because bitcoin approached
0: venture capital not bitcoin
1: that was of course anonymously created by yeah. satoshi who nobody knows who he is but on yeah. the on the ethereum side those yeah. projects were actively approaching Uh, People on Sand Hill Road, which everyone knows Sand Hill Road is the road in Palo Alto where all the venture capitalists used to have their still have their headquarters. Yeah, they all turned down crypto projects in 2017. And that can be fact checked by everyone. And the reason that they turned it down was effectively it didn't look like anything else that it previously existed. Yeah, it was. Yes, you had a bunch of new. It was it was so new that there was nobody that a VC could call and say, hey, have you yeah. heard of this? Can you, can you vouch for these guys? Yeah. And so yeah. that lack of capital is what actually mean. created the necessity for the ICO. It was the necessity that led to the innovation of like, hey, VC is not going to pay us any attention. Yeah. Let's go ahead and figure out how to create our own tokens and fund ourselves with our own community. Our own liquidity. Which, yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, okay. I've written about this. I can probably send you a link to it. I'll put it up on my site as well. But I was writing stuff about this back in 2017, which was now the froth and the issues that went on and some of the bad actors. Yeah. That doesn't go away. But the key piece is that what I think the important moment in 2017 was, was that for the first time, your average person on the street who is not a quote unquote accredited investor, they were and then had the, had the opportunity mm-hmm. to participate in the upside of capital formation in the same way that Google or Facebook had their VC investors and they got you know 10,000 X returns.
2: Yeah. And I
1: think that is what really opened up um, people's imaginations. And that's what actually caught Silicon Valley's attention. That was what caught Sand Hill Road's attention when, for example, Ethereum, is well over a billion dollar size ICO. And there are tons of other projects, not to just single them out. There were tons of other projects, some of which fizzled out, some of which became much larger and still around and working, but they all raised their rounds around that 2017 time. Yeah. And some use VC capital and some use token sales. Yeah. And that, that showed the industry that, hey, we need to pay attention to these people because they may not even need us in the future, in the future if the trend were to continue. And it's continuing. Um, it is. I don't think it's going to lie. That time period is a snapshot. And it probably yeah. will never come back because yeah. regulators just won't allow that to happen. But it was a... It, I put a tweet out earlier about this. It was a proof of concept that you could really go direct to your community mm-hmm. to raise capital. And you don't need a lot of middlemen involved in that process.
0: Yeah. 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 So... I think that was awesome because, like you said, proof of concept, right? Product market fit, right? Like if Joshua and Corey, you know, two intelligent guys say, hey, we have like a few thousand people in our our network, 10,000, whatever. Hey, we want to start this XYZ project. We want to have a token sale. We could literally raise $50 million in a matter of a week or a month. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I run a startup. It's taken us how many years to like get a real seed fund by accredited investors, um, which I'm thankful it took that long for, you know, just learning, growing, actually finding mm-hmm. part market fit for something that could be massive and um, impactful. But right. Like you said, there was a lot of gatekeepers in Sand Hill road and Silicon Valley or just to access to capital. And I think it's a bigger issue. Yeah. That's the, to me, that's the core issue about,
1: so when I think about Mm -hmm. cryptocurrencies and I use the words digital assets as opposed to cryptocurrencies, but for the purposes of folks listening to this, I think of them interchangeably, even though I prefer digital assets. Mm -hmm. When you use that term, what I'm thinking about, if if you boil it all down, why is it that the public, why is it that let's say millennials and Gen Z, Gen X have been so enamored by this Yeah, My personal opinion is that this is the first time that the average person can really have the hope of some sort of an outsized return or gain. And when you look at the now, of course, as an attorney, I understand the history of the 33 Act, the 34 Act, you know, the charlatans and the things that were going on in that period of time that created the need for regulation. But the downside or the the inverse of those rules is that while the consumer is protected from the risk of loss, Mm -hmm. they are also, which goes unstated, never allowed to have the gains. Mm -hmm. And and the reason that this, this crypto push, I think, has been so fervent since 2009 is the confluence of events that we've had post great financial crisis Mm -hmm. and the day-to-day lives of your average person around the world has just gotten more difficult. And crypto really is an avenue for hope that not hope in a lottery sense ticket, but hope in the sense that innovators can connect directly with like-minded members of a community. Those like-minded members of a community can, if they so choose, participate in that upside in a way that is basically unfiltered. Mm-hmm. Because if you're a project and you have a token and you have, and that's the only avenue to your cap table, so to speak, yeah. other than you know traditionally, even though VC is involved, that's giving the public much more upside volatility than, than you would have seen before. And what I analogize it to when people ask me, what's the difference between venture capital and the crypto markets and and what is all this volatility and token price? I really do consider it, I consider it um, real time mark to market pricing of a protocol in the same way that you would price a portfolio, but portfolios don't use mark to market accounting. And so that's how you can have a VC investment that goes on for 10, 15 years. And then they do an IPO with a pop. But on a day-to-day given basis there's no there's no market pricing mechanism for how well a protocol is doing in the crypto space you can you can see that directly based on sentiment in the market and so i think that's where a lot of that volatility comes from that people get uh, put off by regulators get scared of but what i always tell people is that if you don't have any volatility you will not have any return Mm -hmm. So when people complain about the volatility of crypto as an industry, what they're leaving out though, is that that volatility is the price of your returns. If you want steady, stable one and 2% returns per year, stick with the treasury market and the bond market. Mm -hmm. Why is everyone leaving those markets? Because it doesn't even keep up with inflation. And so it's a duplicitous argument to say on the one hand, we need to tamp down on the volatility, mm-hmm. or even an institutional investor. When an institutional investor says, "I love the asset class, but it's too volatile," mm-hmm. well, if they're trying to balance their their short term and long term liabilities, they're going to need that upside volatility, yeah. in order to meet their obligations in the future. Which is the very reason why they allocate to venture, private equity, and hedge in general, anyways, because that volatility gives you the ability to make those outsized returns. Yeah. Ooh. I am passionate about this. So let me
0: not, you know, he, no, I'm very, very passionate for you. And this is for the people. This is for you to let a load off for us to have an awesome conversation. And I think your background, like, I think every, you know, young adult, every (laughs) seasoned veteran in life, and I mean, even kids should be listening to this for so many reasons. But I think you said it so pure. It's like it's risk to return to every. Every asset you have, or everything in life, there's a risk, um, but there's also a reward, right? That's investing. Like to scale it up, time. How you use your 24 yeah. hours in a day, there's a risk, right, and a reward to that. Like, and then we take it down to money. Since you're the money guy, and I'm I, money school, like, <laughs> you, you're there's a risk for you holding that dollar versus you holding Bitcoin versus you holding Ethereum versus you holding yeah some physical gold. There's a risk, but there's also a return. So you have to think about hey there's risk what is the risk in return for me holding this dollar versus me holding bitcoin and what how long does that look like so i think like um that was an awesome breakdown so how do you for i guess obviously we know now for people that don't know cryptocurrency right or digital assets i guess just the cryptocurrencies right the tokens and the currencies Mm -hmm. as an asset class is a little over $2 trillion or at $2 trillion, it fluctuates currently, um, Bitcoin being about 42% of that 2 million. Um, mm-hmm. And it's obviously like the, the, o, the FOMC, basically the Federal Reserve's meet, meet, uh, meeting minutes, they spoke about cryptocurrencies for the first time, <laughs> right? We've had me and you met on a Twitter spaces where a lot of cryptocurrency big shots were talking about, we need to say we can't let these people in Congress Do the infrastructure bill that really was um, basically saying, hey, we're making a lot of these miners and fees basically say, hey, these a lot of these things are custodial, right? They are market makers. Um, Mm -hmm. And so basically we're getting a lot of regulatory attention, like to every everything financial, everything that is a business has law that has to confine to whether it's local or national. So to your expertise with finance and the legal world, time to put on your teacher hat again, like give us the breakdown for a lot of us. It's very hard to understand, like what is really going on in the weeds and like in Capitol Hill, even international law, Mm -hmm. you're all over, you're in Bangkok, like what is really going on as you've been in this space for over half a decade, like what's really going on to date and how does that impact us? going into the next year and into this decade as a whole? Well, that's a great
1: question. I guess um, I'll try to break it down into a couple of different parts just so that, you know, the audience can kind of think through. And I'll I'll harken back to one key point of my background is that I said, when I was an undergrad, I was political science and economics. So Mm -hmm. I actually did work on the legislative side. So that's I do understand how legislation works. I've done work representing different types of clients, Mm. pushing legislation, getting it passed at the state level and at the national level Um, policy, that sort of thing. I've been involved with that in the private investment space. So I think what's going on now is that let's take the U S first. When you look at the United States, um, crypto was really never viewed as anything that was a serious concern up until let's say the last 12 months or so. Once the price for better or worse, even though, you know, the price of a project doesn't actually represent the real value, but people pay attention to that. It's a human nature. Yeah. And what I think is going on and the reason why I even spoke up on the Twitter spaces and ever got involved, because I've been commenting privately to different folks in the space for years. But for me, the issue was my understanding of both government policy, politics and law is what I think people need to be prepared for is that. September 13th and September 20th, I put this on Twitter a few weeks ago, are the dates people need to watch. And why do I say that? Yeah. September 13th, I believe is the date that the Senate officially comes back into session, even though they can work. So this is at the congressional level. They can work even though it's a holiday. So like right now there is technically vacation time, but that doesn't mean they're all on vacation. Usually they go back to their districts and they're dealing with things there. But because of things in the media that are going on, not related to crypto, you know, they may all still be in Capitol Hill. But what I expect is that there's a staffer, so a human being (laughs) at different regulatory agencies that have been given an assignment over the summer. And that assignment has been to draft language and legislation related to crypto. And then they've been given those assignments by regulatory agencies such as CFTC, SEC, as well as senator offices such as Senator Warren. Um, other senators not calling her out specifically, but their job is to basically draft the rules and the policies and the strategy. And then what they're going to do is they're going to hand that to the senators. The senators are going to take their game plan. They're going to talk to other key senators in horse trade, and they're going to nominate someone to put forth legislation. Yeah. And that's what we saw with this infrastructure bill,
2: yeah. that
1: the people putting forth the legislation were really just straw men. And you use that concept where in many different areas where somebody is making a purchase for somebody else, right? It's the same concept. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see that and we're going to see it for a few reasons. One has really nothing directly to do with crypto. I think one thing that people often forget is that each administrative agency at the federal government level, they have their own budgets and they have their own jurisdictions and purview. Yeah. So the treasury department has its own set of people, leaders, prerogatives, et cetera. The Securities and Exchange Commission, the CFTC, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So some of what we see going on is a brand new technology and set of innovations that different agencies and government are trying to make sure they carve out their authority to regulate over the specific parts. And why is that? Well, in the US, the law is basically written by analogy. It's like a case law. Right? Yeah. Case law comes from English law. Yeah. Case law is English law. English law is law by analogy. So you make a you make a legal precedent based on a case or a ruling, and that draws analogy to prior cases and prior rulings. Mm-hmm. The issue with what what you see with Bitcoin is, and I wrote an article in 2017 about this. The nature of our legal system is that it's designed to take something and say, this thing is like this other thing, and therefore, we're going to treat it in that way. Yeah. And what you're trying to do, what the regulatory agencies are trying to do with crypto and why they're struggling, and what they're going to really push forward, I think, in this coming fall, is putting the structures in place to take this new thing that people can't quite fully categorized by all these agencies and they want to put it in nice neat little boxes to say who can regulate and administrate what and the reason that that is a risk is that their individual goals to do that may cause collective harm to the digital asset ecosystem Mm -hmm. now treasury is concerned about things they should be concerned about aml kyc uh, not financing terrorism. What is know, AML all the for the for the, okay. For
0: the break-in game?
1: Okay, yeah. So anti money laundering and know your customer rules, mm-hmm. Treasury Department and FinCEN, which is the um, financial they they cover financial crimes and you know those sorts of things. Their goal, which is a the right thing to do, is to make sure that that funds aren't being flowed to illegal organizations or bad people. And with this new technology, the issue is the rules aren't really set up to properly cover that. Yeah. And so if you're a regulatory agency, your first inclination is to basically grab for power and authority and yeah. figure out the details later. If you're the industry, the technology industry, just like when the internet was first introduced in the 90s, you're saying, wait. If you overregulate us, you might kill a lot of innovation. Yeah. So we're playing out that same story again. And you see that in jurisdiction after jurisdiction. If you, if you take that, that main area as it relates to the cryptocurrency space, I think we're gonna see in September um, a major push to classify most of the tokens that might be listed on a Coinbase as securities. And get them removed, and I think we're also going to see the Bitcoin and Ethereum. They won't, they can't be really regulated, and the reason they they can be regulated. Let's let's restate that, but they won't be banned. And the reason is just a very simple, real politic reason. Wall Street has too much money involved with Bitcoin and
0: Ethereum right now. Are you, yeah, Wells Fargo just it's done. Up. Is done. JP Morgan, Too much. they've been involved. All the big, if you know a bank, they probably have a small allocation or if you know an investment fund, everybody out there, they probably have a small portion of their money. BlackRock might be like 0.1% of their 9 trillion plus dollar balance sheet, but they have some money in Bitcoin. So
1: that's the good news. The good news is Bitcoin, Ethereum, I think crypto in general is not going to go away because it's basically, the baby has grown too big to sort of kill in the cradle at this point. That's really what the, if this had been 2015, 16, 17, they could have done it, but it's out of the bottle now. The genie's out of the bottle. Mm-hmm. I think what the issue though, we're probably going to face is that if you remember when we started this conversation, I talked about the beauty of crypto showing that a project or a protocol could go direct to the consumer and that community could fund that project. Oh, no, don't do it. Regulators are going to step right back in there and it's not going to go away. You're going to have the same rules and requirements that you have raising a VC fund or what's called a Reg A fund, where if you're trying to raise, let's say, 30 to 50 million, that isn't, that's not a bad thing. My point is not that that's bad, but my point is that those are costs on entrepreneurship. Yeah. And it operates as a tax because if you as an entrepreneur... Now need 75 thousand dollars to cover legal expenses, to cover compliance expenses You're dead. maybe you maybe you don't even start your idea, oh. or maybe you take that idea and you go to a jurisdiction that will let you start it up for much less. That's, to me is the core risk. Move you move up yeah, you just, um, That's the core risk. Um, and in the other other areas of the world, governments are looking at things in different ways, but I'd say they're all generally in the same sphere. I, I look at them in spheres, so the North American sphere, mm-hmm. and then the European sphere governed by the EU.
2: Yeah. And
1: then in Asia, there's a mix of effectively China as its own thing. And then Southeast Asia is really countries look to what Singapore is doing, yeah. and then Japan and Korea do their own thing as well, kind of in concert with the US. So. I think what what I see is that um, every jurisdiction is trying to figure out the best way to wrap their heads around the innovation, but I think what we're going to see the rest of this year and going in the coming years is a divergence between jurisdictions, and that has to do with local issues like um, foreign currency strength, capital accounts, like macroeconomic issues, I think are going to drive... Um, how some countries treat cryptocurrencies and digital assets. Like if you're in a country with a weak currency, you just have different day-to-day concerns yeah. than if you are, let's say Singapore, which is basically like Switzerland and Asia, where they're trying to attract global capital all the time. And if you look, all the cryptocurrency exchanges that have set up Asian operations, the majority of them are in Singapore. Yeah, yeah. And that's the reason why is that they are they are the Switzerland of Asia. They are the money center. They want to be open for business, but they don't have the same issues that
0: you know Vietnam would have or you know Malaysia would have, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's interesting. So September 13th, September 20th are the next dates that anyone interested or have invested interest in crypto need to be looking for. What what do you think that you said the outcome is like? a lot of cryptos, will, so will be regulated or the space will be more regulated and cryptos will- Yeah, have a I mean,
1: what I'm worried about is, so the Twitter spaces I got involved in, how we ended up meeting was is what I'm actually worried about. So in that Twitter spaces, that this discussion was the infrastructure bill. And yeah. so the the issue was, well, what is this infrastructure bill and what does this mean for crypto? Yeah, And the infrastructure bill actually did two different things one thing that it did was define broadly the term of what is a broker Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: by defining it so broadly it risks catching as a dragnet developers software teams you know people like a coinbase kraken the the regulation was drafted so broadly that that interpretation of what is a broker Mm. could be something that turns out to be onerous now Uh, Congress and the various uh, representatives that put the bill forward and the senators said, that's not our intent. And my point in the spaces was that your intent doesn't actually matter because if the Treasury Department decides that they want to take a tact for some other reason, there could be many reasons that we're not aware of and we wouldn't be aware of. It could be preserving uh, leeway to head off future innovation. It could be um, the banks, which are a strong lobby and have connection with the Fed, and I mean, it could be a million different reasons why the Treasury could take the position that we want to create an overly broad definition yeah. to not allow a Vitalik or a Gavin Wood to innovate in the future in a way that we can't control before it happens. Yeah, we don't know the answer to that. The other thing that that the that the rules did, the infrastructure bill did that not a lot of people paid attention to, was that you'll recall at the end of 2020, when the when Treasury Secretary Mnuchin was leaving, um, he had tried to put forth a bill. I believe it was in December, maybe December fifteenth, 2020. Yeah. Um, that was going to require suspicious activity reports to be filed for any transaction. I believe it was above five thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And that provision is a version of that has found its way back in this infrastructure bill as well. So, okay, Corey, why does that matter? Well, the discussions that happened the last few weeks on Twitter and online with the crypto community to get the amendments through those amendments didn't actually happen. They, they never, um, they never got called to vote for a reason dealing with Senate procedure Yeah, and that, If they had been called to vote, it was possible that other things would have fallen apart, not related to crypto. And so there was no vote. But what does that mean? So what's the what's the summary of what this means? It means that the infrastructure bill as originally drafted is what's going to be put forth in September. Yeah, it means the overly broad language with no change. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it remains to be seen. I think what's going to happen is there'll be another version of a fight. Um, Whether or not any amendments are made actually don't have anything directly to do with crypto because remember the infrastructure bill is a budget bill for the federal government. So there's a million moving parts in that bill. Crypto yeah. is the pay for. So the reason that crypto got into that bill was that the 28 billion to be raised via taxing the industry, which is mind you a budgetary projection that 28 billion came from the CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office. What yeah. they do is they say, they basically run a, run a scenario analysis in Excel and say that given the size of an industry, we think we're going to raise this much tax. That allowed Congress to offset the spending that was going to happen. So crypto effectively just became the whipping boy because it was the least strong lobbyist in Washington. And so the risk that the crypto industry faces is that if the bill passes with no modification, no amendment, um, we'll be okay up until probably a year from now, the end of 2022, when the bill fully comes into effect. Yeah. And if it were to fully come into effect as drafted, it's going to mean that if you're an exchange, if you're Coinbase, you're Kraken, they're going to start having higher compliance costs first, yeah. but then they're also going to have to start um, basically reporting on customers in a way that might stifle innovation.
0: That's the risk. Yeah. And you'd, you'd be like the old system, right? Like you'll just be like the NASDAQ. It's, there's no difference, right? If I put on my political science hat, if
1: I'm a bank, I want this. And why do I want this? Well, cryptocurrency is effectively the fintech space. It's a fintech. Fintech mm-hmm. operates under, because it didn't exist 100 years ago. Fintech has lower levels of compliance costs. They have Mm -hmm. lower levels of Mm headcount. They have higher levels of profitability. By imposing these rules that are actually more stricter than what the banks face, you are now increasing compliance costs, which could be considered a tax on your EBITDA, right? Strategy. It will slow the industry down. Bottom line. It slows the industry down and it allows the banks to catch up. Now, that's not to sound conspiratorial. I'm looking at the outcome not the rhetoric, like what is the actual outcome going to be yeah. if you're a CFO and you're a CEO and you have another 200 pages of regulations to comply with? Well, you've got to now hire many more people and you've got to now slow down well, department. your innovation.
2: Yeah, You
1: have to slow down your innovation. Now, before you want to launch a product, you now have to run it by 30, 40 people, additional lawyers, yeah, um, which is a reason why. I mean, there's a reason why no US exchange has issued a token so if you think about the binance token if you think about ftx tokens they're not available in the united states the reason for that is related to the securities laws the compliance I can't use by those risks yeah nope that's why
2: yeah it's compliance.
1: so i'm not a, i'm not anti-compliance but i'm just i like to point out that there's two sides to each coin yeah. and the debate is always about how do you properly balance that? Nobody wants to have the 1920s where people get swindled out of everything, but you also don't want to kill the next job creation engine in the United
0: States. Yeah. Cause then we'll, we'll, in terms of competition, our superpower will, or the future, right? We'll lose people and we'll lose opportunity. Um, so I mean, that's a risk. It's yeah.
1: a real risk. It's a. I think it'll be an interesting... I don't think this is over. I think it's going to be a you know five-year, six-year sort of a process.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, but I think it will definitely be something for us all to watch. Now, said all that, I'm still bullish Ethereum and bullish Bitcoin. I'm bullish the space in general yeah. because the fact that it was inevitable that you cannot have the type of success that the digital asset ecosystem wants to have and not have regulatory yeah and broader political issues come up it's not possible like you you can't it's there's a price right there's a price of success in any area of life you can't have that level of exactly so that's you know this is just par for the course is kind of how i look at it yeah
0: it it wouldn't be talked about we wouldn't have those type of talks on twitter if it was nothing if it wasn't a thing, right? And so- Exactly. Think, right, we wouldn't be talking about now for an hour. So I think that's the the beauty in the battle of like the the future of innovation and America, like getting, hopefully getting out of its own way, right? Just because we were the growth engine for the world. And that's a whole nother discussion of why and how. It doesn't mean we will for the future because like you said, the other countries that are hungry Right, that are second tier mm-hmm. or third tier, like El Salvador, like and hey, they're trying to come up, right? Africa, Southeast Asia, with this play to play, play to earn, which is a whole another thing um, <laughs> that we won't have enough time for today. But I know it's late mm-hmm. in, in Bangkok. <laughs> but yeah, that's why I say I think I think we're gonna see a real divergence. So
1: there's a a lot of folks have spoken on versions of this, but my personal opinion is that. You know, the U.S. today is the equivalent of what Europe, let's say Western Europe was yeah. in the 1700s. Right. People that left Western Europe to move to America were looking for the new world. But if you were already wealthy, you didn't leave. Yeah. You don't have anywhere. to. You don't need to go anywhere. Comfortable. And so I
0: think that, that's your exactly. Doll. King dollar, still king. You're good you're six figures, you're, you know, you're financially free, whatever you are on the, ric- on the wealth scale, you're, you're good. It's, if
1: you, if you look at history to synthesize it, you know, you, you go from Western Europe. So you go from the UK, France, Germany area, you migrate where you migrate further West to America, to the new world. Yeah. The people in the new world, again, I mentioned, you know, having spent a lot of time in Boston and the Northeast, which is old money,
0: yeah. right.
1: Super. those people didn't, those people didn't move to California during the gold rush. They yeah. stayed on the West, on the East coast. That's why the big banks are all on the East coast.
2: Yeah. And that's
1: why the tech companies all were founded on the West coast. People have constantly moved throughout history. It's human nature. in their
0: pastures. Exactly. Always, I think the issue. We're always searching for that. Wow. That's a philosophy. We are.
1: And what, what, what we're going to run into over the coming decade, and everybody can look back and timestamp this in 10 years. Hopefully we're all here, which is going to be, that there's different countries that have different histories are going to take different approaches to cryptocurrencies. So for example, if I'm El Salvador or I'm Colombia or Nicaragua or I'm Nigeria, right? They've been a member of the IMF and the World Bank and the current world system since World War II. That system has existed since 1945, all post-World War II economic order, right? Yeah. Yeah. So- if I'm any of those nation states and I'm looking at crypto, I'm gonna look at the last 50 to 60 years of my country and say, what has this current order and this current system done for me? What has it done for my people? What has it done for my nation state? What has it done for my currency? Mm -hmm. These are the that's this is why I think at its core, it doesn't matter how you might think it's gonna play out. I think you're gonna see differing approaches because nation states have not had this kind of an opportunity to chart their own
0: unique paths yeah. since World War II. Yeah, so that, that's like what decentralization is. It's saying these different states, these different countries, in people, these different ecosystems that are being built are formed, like we're having that new shuffle again, like kind of, oh, yeah. to, make, to make the new path for people to make the plays, whether it's on a national level or individual level. It's time to migrate to the new system. What where, where do you well, think? I'm a big student of history. And so if, if you yeah. look at the, if you you, anyone that's watching
1: can Google this, there's the, the Treaty of Westphalia is that treaty was in the late 1600s. I don't want to quote the date wrong, but you can Google to confirm that date. That treaty created the modern nation state that we think of. Yeah. So if you were to Google a map of the world in 1500. And then you Google a map of the world in 1900, you see the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire covered everything from the Baltics to what we now consider the Middle East to parts of North Africa. And you look at after World War II, so 1945, that whole map of the world looked different.
2: Yeah,
1: And it's just that, you know, we're all we all think in our own, you know, we're all kind of stuck in our own heads. Yeah. yeah. Our our 30- the world is constantly changing constantly changing constantly changing and so i think we're just going back to a period of time where that's uncomfortable for people but we're going to see a lot of those sorts of changes um but i think it's an immense opportunity as long as we have um the mental disposition and stay nimble to those opportunities and
0: to that change
2: yeah
0: wow this is we can go another hour (laughs) but uh (laughs) Where do you, um, I, I know there's like, there's a digital revolution where like we're already on these digital spaces like Zoom, Instagram, we're on Facebook, where you know we buy things through Amazon, we watch things through Netflix, we search through Google, right? We went from yellow pages. I say, I keep talking about this. We went from yellow pages, right? Everything was indexed in mm-hmm. the catalog, then the catalog mm-hmm. on the internet, which anyone could search for that had internet service and it got better bandwidth so you can reach further Mm -hmm. places. more people have it about almost a third to half the world has internet and we're looking for the next billion to 2 billion people to get online and then like the metaverse which now people are talking about it now great but like you said it's always evolving right um the metaverse is like you know a fully interactive engaging experience where me and you can actually hang out we're literally 12 hours apart but we could literally not just you know text dm each other but like we can say hey like let's go to these coordinates and like live yeah. in this world right let's walk around and run together whatever we want to do um which is that's still a ways away in terms of infrastructure being built out right so that's like web three um in terms of like i'm saying prefacing that to say like break into the future we're about to break in and get your thoughts Like we have this digital, full, real ecosystem and ecosystems, plural, that are being built to do that. But then, like you said, the map will change. So like are, I want to ask, this is the question, like, do, where are people going to move in the physical, are people going to move in the physical world? But they might stay where they're at, not literally move physically, potentially, and, or also just say, Hey, I'm going to move into this the digital world as well and create, mm-hmm. create my new space there. Like, do you think it's, what do you think about that? I know it's a big question, but I wanted to kind of frame it for everybody.
1: Yeah, I think um, that's interesting. So I think it's going to be in different subgroups. so for me, I mean I've been a full expat since 2017, um, and I've been everywhere outside of the uS. since then, moved around quite a bit. Yeah. Travel to different countries, but that's not the lifestyle for everyone, right? Yeah. So, some people, but I do think if you look at the knowledge worker economy, if you're a knowledge worker anywhere on earth, and if they meet certain income thresholds and skill set thresholds, yeah. I think they're going to increasingly be mobile if they want to be, but just remote hired from wherever they are yeah like me, and so I think we're yeah, I, I think we're going to see an increasing the rate of change of people moving, whether physically or remote working, remote locating, is only going to increase at a faster pace, but only for people in the digital economy. So I think that's going to be the divide. If you are a construction worker. Or you are a longshoreman, you physically can't work remote. You have to go to a dock, you have to deal with ships, you have to go to lumber yards, you have to build homes. But if you're a knowledge worker, any sort of developer, software person, tech, anything that touches the internet, you can do that work from increasingly anywhere on earth. Yeah. Now, I don't think we're gonna see major moves for a couple of reasons. One, you know, people are still people. They're still going to want to have kids, want to settle down, want to live near family, that sort of thing. But I do think a larger percentage of the population than in the past may say, you know what, I saw this breaking into the future interview. Maybe I should look at going some other place that I haven't been before. Um, They they may think, oh, maybe I'm open to it at least for a few years. Um, I think we're increasingly going to see that where people might decide. Yeah. Um. I, people I know personally who, you know, they born and raised in Canada, owned real estate, sold the properties, moved to the Azores, which is off the coast of Portugal. Yeah. Bought a house cash, living in retirement, but working part time, mm-hmm. you know? So I think we'll see hybrids of all that um, in the future. And I think for the, the, the good thing is like when you and I were kids, especially when I was a kid, so I don't want to date you, but when I was a kid, yeah. You couldn't get on the internet. You couldn't get on the internet the way you can now. So when I was, I'm probably the last generation pre-internet, which I remember the internet at around like eight years old, seven or eight years old. You could get prodigy and AOL and that kind of thing. Yeah. But before that, I was still too young. But nowadays, it doesn't matter where you live on earth. If you want to learn anything, you can basically hop on YouTube or other online sites and you can gain, you can skill up. Instantly, that would allow you that would allow you to go anywhere. Yeah. And I think that opportunity, if people take advantage of it, it could drastically change the makeup of nation states. If you look at the crypto space, specifically, you look at what's going on in the US, you look at Wyoming, you look at Texas, you look at Miami. Internationally, you look at Singapore, you look at what Malta is doing, you look at uh, Portugal, what they're doing. So you are seeing nation states saying, "Hey." we might lack in certain areas, yeah. but we can create policies to attract these new minds and this new type of capital yeah. to our nation state. And we can make it super friendly for you to come here. Yeah. And a certain percentage of people are gonna say, hey, the grass is really green on the other side. Like they're gonna give me tax breaks. They're gonna let me do different things. And people will get up on a plane and move yeah. if the incentives
0: are high enough. Yeah. So I
1: think it's an incredibly exciting time if, if we're open to it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Man, so basically you're telling me to come come to hang out with you in Bangkok. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right now is maybe a little
1: tricky, but um, yeah. I think there's a lot of jurisdictions. You know, I, I spend time not just here. I think there's a lot of jurisdictions where when things calm down a little bit, um, it'll be a lot of interesting opportunities for folks. And I think you're going to see countries have to innovate like this because their own budgets are hurting from what's going on right now. Yeah. So they're going to create policies that are business friendly. Like yeah. you, you hear it in the States all the time, you know, business friendly uh, jurisdictions, yeah. business friendly laws. So nation states are going to start saying, hey, well, if crypto's on the Internet, if people all around the world hold it, why don't we create policies to attract some of that capital from all around the world like El Salvador is doing or like
0: other places? Yeah. Yeah. You already hear it in crypto space. People are like, I might just move to El Salvador. I, I might see, go out there and check it out. So I yeah, yeah, I agree. We're we're really early in that time, right? And like it's a nation state, so it takes time to develop these things. You can't just move so fast and break things, you can't break a nation. Mm-hmm. That bad. <laughs> this isn't a tech company. Yep. Um, so yep. I understand that. But definitely like I don't know if you I don't think you lived in Africa, but like that's a big focus for me. And our me and my brother's tech company, our whole team is in Africa. In our CTOs in Africa.
1: Oh wow, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah. we could talk about. So, I think there's a <laughs> lot of opportunities in Africa. I think um, it's really the last jurisdiction that hasn't really been developed. And of course, there's so many different countries and cultures and rules. And but I do think there's a lot of great opportunity there. Of course, there's a lot of great human capital. Yeah, um, incredibly smart people all over the continent. Yeah, um, incredibly well educated. So yeah. I think yeah, there's definitely going to be a a africa rising
0: story i think more people will hear about as the years go on it's happening it's happening for sure um yeah man this is awesome where uh where can people follow you keep in touch i know this is like your your uh your coming out party uh to the public eye (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah i'm not really in public a lot so i guess the easiest way to
1: follow me uh for now you can check out my website is uh my name so Corey c-o-r-e-y harris.com yeah. And then the place I'm most active daily is Twitter, which is uh, my name again, Corey Harris underscore ESQ. That's for Esquire. So you can catch me on Twitter there. my Twitter handle has my website as well. That's the easiest place for folks to reach out, um, you know, follow me, that sort of thing. And yeah.
0: anything I have going on, folks will be able to see it there. Nice. One One takeaway uh, I know we, uh, no, I learned and a lot of people will learn a lot from this. This uh, this this not lecture session, but you know fireside chat. What do you want someone to take away uh, from this? From like just things that you've, like that's on your mind right now, and then like since this is breaking into the future, like something future that's on your mind.
1: Um. Well, the two the two key things I think, you know, wherever you are in your life when you hear this, you can always make the changes needed to put yourself on the road to the path that you wanna be on. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what you're doing right now, listening to this, where you work, if you wanna break into the industry, you can do that if you just really change your thoughts and put yourself in a position and around people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the in the crypto space, what I'm looking forward to and what I think we're gonna see in the next 12 to 18 months, I think we're gonna see the S-curve of adoption of crypto, um, continue to exponentially grow. Yeah. I'm expecting any day now, or any day within the next couple of months, that everybody's major US banks are going to offer crypto services just on, you know, your grandma will be able to get it on her checking account.
2: Yeah, um,
1: I'm expecting that at any time, and I think that that's going to really continue to usher in a mainstream understanding of crypto, and as that happens, um, you know, the whole ecosystem benefits. And the final thing I'm waiting on which I don't know when it's going to come, but I'm waiting on our iPhone moment. It's probably a few years away. But what do I mean by that? I mean, is UX and UI interface for the ecosystem that is so easy that your your grandmother, your aunt, your grandfather, people who don't know anything about tech can just pick it up and use it. Yeah. And when that happens,
0: yeah, it's really going to be a mass market phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think like like that's one of the big challenges and that we're working on in industries. Like it's super complex to use. Um, it's better than 2017. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, another more iteration, more. I mean, we already have great talent in the space, but just like more iterations, right? More yeah. more uh better UI UX, which is just design and um just understanding users better. Stop making things so nerdy <laughs> uh but. yeah i mean it's to be honest it's all built by engineers right so
1: we need to get we need to get non-engineers we need to get like ux ui we need to get marketing people people with the qualitative yeah. skills how do things feel we need to get some of yeah. some more of those people we need more steve jobs. engineers
0: we need more steve yeah, Jobs, yeah because he will happen. happen yeah so cool man this is awesome man uh Man, looking forward to part two, man. Big bro. This is <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Your time. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Yo, we just had a, an amazing conversation. I hope you guys picked that. That was a, a master class on life. Curiosity. You heard his future takes as well. Stay curious if you're young, if you're old. Doesn't matter your age. Stay curious. See you to learn. How does that apply to your life? Can you apply it, not just read it about it, not just get a good grade if you're in school? Use your schooling, the theory, so you can put it in practice. Corey Harris, a businessman, just happens to be a lawyer, been in venture capital, um, a lot of different um, investment vehicles. So um, I'll leave his information below. This is Breaking to the Future, Joshua Taylor. You know what it is, Breaking Gang. I love you guys.